Hey there. Welcome to The Kicker, the Columbia Journalism Review's weekly journey through the world of media. I'm your brother-in-arms, David Uberti, and we got a great show for you this week. First, my CGR comrades will help me run through some of the big media news of the week. Threats against Al Jazeera, Fox Sports' pivot to video, and Chris Christie on a beach he shouldn't have been on. Then, we will try to unpack the controversy that's engulfing CNN. Did a network implicitly threaten to out an anonymous Reddit user, as pro-Trump firebrands are arguing? It's complicated, and we will try to dissect this ethical minefield as best we can. Finally, I'll interview Dave Mistich, a digital managing editor for 100 Days in Appalachia, a new project devoted to covering issues in West Virginia and beyond. The two of us Daves will chat through the difficulty national journalists have in covering these voters comprehensively. But first, let's do the news. Joining me now is the dream team of CGR's nascent podcasting empire, senior editor Christy Chisholm. Christy. Hello. And also Delacorte fellow Pete Vernon. Pete. Hey, Dave. Good to be back. It's great to be back. Uh, Pete, you wrote in CGR's morning newsletter today that Al Jazeera, news organization based in Qatar, is caught in the crosshairs of a diplomatic crisis. What exactly is going on in Doha? So as the world leaders prepare to gather for a G20 summit in Germany this week, there's an international diplomatic crisis unfolding in the Gulf. And the basic outlines that involve more than just any media property are that four Arab nations, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain have imposed a blockade and a list of demand and have given a list of demands to Qatar, which is a small but wealthy Gulf nation. Um, and it's home to Al Jazeera. The emir of Qatar founded this uh, organiza- news organization in 1996. It's become an international powerhouse, providing one of the few really good journalistic outlets in the region where so many countries have really serious press restrictions. And Al Jazeera is not perfect. It does not criticize the Qatari government in the same way it does other governments in the area, but it's uh, a really valuable source of news. They have really serious journalists. They were one of the major outlets that covered the Arab Spring comprehensively back in 2011. And these governments led by Saudi Arabia have demanded that it be closed in order to resolve the conflict that's going on there. Yeah, it just seems to fit into a broader trend of states cracking down on independent media. And this is a little bit of a new flavor, at least from my perspective, of them doing so across international borders. Right. There was uh, an editorial in The Economist that compared this to as if China ordered the BBC to be shut down, had gotten in a conflict with the UK and ordered the BBC to be shut down because of reporting it deemed critical of the government. And I think that's a fair comparison, right? This is uh, an international crisis involving governments, and this media organization has been drawn into the middle of it. Right. And the interesting thing, in addition to all of that, is that the last five years at Al Jazeera have been pretty disastrous. I mean, it, you know, at the beginning of the so-called Arab Spring, it sort of exploded onto the global stage, providing this incredible coverage of really an incredible cross-border movement. Uh, since then, it tried to make the jump into the American market with Al Jazeera America, which failed spectacularly in a number of years. It gained really no audience whatsoever. And now, I mean, it's still to be seen what happens with, with this particular diplomatic um, crisis, but it could be a very dark time for Al Jazeera. Right. I mean, it could be the end of Al Jazeera. They're really facing an existential crisis. The government has so far rebuffed the demands of this Arab bloc, but you know, if that is the price to pay to be able to trade and interact diplomatically with these other neighbors, um, we we don't know what's going to happen. All right. Well, let's make a pivot, shall we? Moving on to sports. 
You're telling me earlier about big news at a would-be competitor for ESPN. Yeah, Fox Sports, which uh, had launched two channels in an effort to compete with ESPN and ESPN2, is basically shifting all of its digital efforts to video. They have let go their entire print editorial team, their digital print editorial team, in an effort to embrace the kind of media buzzword of the year, pivot to video. The pivot to video. Pivot. (laughs) And this joins uh, kind of a a litany of recent organizations that have embraced this strategy. Vocative did something recently. MTV News just shuttered a short-lived but ambitious experiment in politics and pop culture coverage that a lot of people were talking about last week as a disappointing outcome to an 18-month experiment in long-form digital journalism. And this idea of pivoting to video is something that we've been talking a lot about <laughs> in the newsroom. Well, it's, so is pivoting to something. It doesn't have to be video. I mean, who <laughs> was it? There was a great quote that you found from, what was the what was the piece? There was a, a Newsweek piece by Zach Schoenfeld that I, did a really great job talking about this and putting it in context. Um, basically, his argument is that pivoting to video, and I'm quoting from this piece now, pivoting to video won't solve long-term media business woes in 2017, just as Facebook Live Live didn't solve them in 2016, and quizzes didn't solve them in 2014, and curiosity gap headlines didn't solve them in 2013, and listicles didn't. So- and it goes on and on, right? Like this is the flavor of the, right. the week, the flavor of the year. I remember when guess. I thought that quizzes were going to save the journalism. Uh, did business. you, Christy? No, I don't. I didn't actually ever think that, but I do remember, you know, being a newspaper back circa 2008 and thinking, and an alt weekly, and thinking. Every, like everything has to be about blogs. Everyone has to have right. their, every reporter has to have their own individual blog. And we thought that like blogs were the new frontier and that was going to make our readership loyal and going to hold on to that, you know. And so I think it's always just the next thing, right. whatever right. the, you know, journalism often looks to technology to save it, even though journalism isn't ultimately, I mean, you help to tell stories through, you know, new kinds of technology, certainly that aids your storytelling. But you can't rely on technology to do journalism for you. That's right. The way it works. It's important to note here that this shift to video is driven not by audience preferences. Audiences across the board, whether they are millennial scum like Dave or uh, <laughs> you know an older generation, Guilty. they they don't in every kind of reported survey they don't prefer video. But you know who does is advertisers. They will pay more for video ads. They know that banner advertising is either dead or dying. Um, and what they want their video content to their video advertising to run with is video content. They don't want a pre-roll ad at the top of a piece of written content. They want the thing that you're forced to watch the 15 or 30 seconds before you get to your video um, because that's more valuable to them. They'll pay publishers more. And so publishers are moving in a direction where they can gather more ad revenue. And this is all a piece of a bigger financial reckoning that our industry continues hmm. to deal with. Right. And the, the sad truth is that pivoting to video is not an editorial strategy. Video is not an editorial strategy. Video is a type of content you produce within a strategy. So what is left to be made of spot Fox Sports? Uh, I don't know. I guess we'll see. Speaking of ill-advised decisions, if you were like me, you went to the beach over the holiday weekend to get your annual base layer sunburn. But I heard some other beachgoers as well. Maybe the, uh, the governor of a state, perhaps? The governor of a state in the midst of a budget shutdown. Uh, Yeah, Chris Christie, uh, America's favorite governor. (laughs) He basically, the New Jersey state legislature had failed to pass a budget, and this resulted in all state beaches, state parks being shut down going into the July 4th weekend. Chris Christie decided this would be a good time for he, his family, his kids' friends to head to a state-owned residence on a state beach. Um, And while he was 
you know, making calls to Trenton and trying to get stuff figured out, that he would just spend a few minutes with his family on the beach, right. sit, plop down in a beach chair. Just wanted to feel a sand between his toes. Right, right, as one does. Right. Uh, and it just so happened that a photographer, photojournalist from the Newark Star-Ledger was flying by in a plane that the paper had chartered to... You know, maybe we knew where Christie was going to be. Maybe he'll be out there. This would be a really good shot if you had a wide open, pristine patch of sand with only the governor and his family out there. And that's exactly what happened. So these pictures became a national and even international story. Right. The, the two things I love about this story are that one, Christie Age denied that he was on a beach, and then the New York Star-Ledger came back with the photos, just proving that they had been lying. And the second being that the New York Star-Ledger had commissioned a plane to take photographs on July 4th, which just to me in a an industry that is in complete financial disaster is mind-boggling. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But pro- props to off. them. It props to off. them. Yeah. It was yeah. a bet that they won. Exactly. Yeah, yeah Andy Mills, uh, who should get credit for this, he had, as you said, scheduled the plane to be chartered on July 4th, and he realized this shutdown's going on. Christie has nothing on his schedule in the afternoon. Let me just go take a shot at this. And it turned out to be a, a great story for him and for the Star-Ledger. Uh, Pete, you were on a New Jersey beach also. I mean, why didn't you get the scoop? You know, my Ocean City city beach was full of July 4th celebrants. But uh, <laughs> unfortunately, Chris Christie was up in the north somewhere. Right. So I didn't get some FaceTime with the Gov. All right. Well, next year. Our next segment is on a story of our time. It might be the most 2017 story I can think of, quite honestly. It needs a bit of context, so forgive me for the long wind-up here. It all began with a tweet, of course, on Sunday, from who else but President Trump. He shared a video of him appearing at a 2007 WWE wrestling match, true story, but the video had CNN's logo superimposed on the head of the dude he was fighting. So, leader of the free world tweets out an internet meme of him beating the hell out of a news organization. I don't want to get into how childish and potentially dangerous that is, why Trump singled out CNN, or the media firestorm it all created. That's just the backdrop. Full stop. It soon emerged that the video originated from an anonymous Reddit user by the pseudonym of Han Asshole Solo, and that the same Reddit user had also posted images that were just grossly racist, anti-Semitic, Islamophobic, every bad thing you could think of. Then, a CNN and reporter, Andrew Kaczynski, who's known for having these magical powers to track down information on the internet, finds Mr. Asshole Solo, contacts him. Mr. Asshole Solo apologizes for the whole thing. Then Kaczynski, writing for CNN.com, reports that he found the guy, was keeping his name private, and then in one line of the story, he added, CNN reserves the right to publish his name should any of his behavior change. Okay. So many people online scratched their head at that line, with some on the right screaming that it was a threat. I don't buy that argument at all, because Kaczynski is a really good reporter, and CNN basically shot down that assertion that it was somehow blackmailing this guy in a statement. I do, however, want to get into why people might have had that takeaway. But first, Christy, getting back to the root question, do you think that Mr. Asshole Solo's real identity is newsworthy? <laughs> Sorry, every time you say that name. Um... <laughs> Oh, God, this is a tricky question. Not knowing his identity, not knowing anything about him, not knowing his like history with what he had posted before, just knowing that this GIF existed in the world or video existed in the world that somebody had done that, finding out who that person is doesn't really strike me as newsworthy. Mm-hmm. Like, so what? Some internet troll. There are a million of them. Sure. Whatever. But then knowing that this guy has this history, he's he's like been propagating hate speech and like putting out all of this other like terrible stuff on the internet 
it d- makes it seem a little more newsworthy. Right. You, you want to so know why? Like, yeah. So now that we know the history of this internet troll, whatever, is his identity newsworthy? Uh, <laughs> the real answer is that I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> right. I don't know what like the ethically sound thing is in this instance. Like I, ha- I, I really don't know. Right. I, I think it's a I w- great question. Right. I would be interested. I mean, I think the fact that he produced all this other sort of racist, terrible stuff on the internet that is really interesting and informing sort of the communities online that Donald Trump and his aides sort of traffic in. Like they spend time in the places that have this sort of content. So sort of tracking how that content gets from point A to point B, how Donald Trump picked it up, I think that sort of thing is interesting. Just having this guy's name as some sort of internet troll I think is less interesting. And that, to me, is how I read the CNN story. It was it was not sort of a explanation of this guy's motivations and why or how Trump might have picked up his content. But it was more saying that here we found this guy, and after we found him, we decided to publish this story saying that we wouldn't name him. Right. I mean, I think you make a good point. There are public figures involved in this story, some of whom we don't know. Was it Dan Scavino, the president's social media director? Was it some other aide who brought this to, as you phrased it, the leader of the free world's attention? And he thought that on Sunday before July 4th, this would be a a good message to send out. as for whether or not this guy is newsworthy, initially my reaction was to say, no, this is this doesn't matter. You know, we've talked a lot in the media about shaming people for things that they write online, whether that's a tweet or a post somewhere, and um, it can really destroy someone's life for something they do in the heat of the moment or kind of without thinking. But the history of this guy, does that make it any more newsworthy? I, I struggle with the same questions Christy mentioned, um, and I guess maybe... Um, It's also a question of resources to some extent, right? Like, one, are there better uses of Andrew Kaczynski and K-Files skills? Probably. Um, And then there's also the optics of CNN being the news organization that was body slammed in in the meme and CNN being the one to do the reporting. And I, I do think Andrew Kaczynski, who came over from BuzzFeed just before the election last fall, if he had still been at BuzzFeed, he probably would have been the guy to find this, Right. you know. And then maybe it doesn't come off as quite so vengeful seeming. Right. Yeah. I, I think it's certainly an optics question, as you as you put it, with with CNN reporting that they had found the guy who had produced content with regard to CNN. I, I think I'm, you know, I, I guess I could see arguments either way of publishing the guy's name or not. But the wishy washiness uh, is a little bit off putting. I say if you devote the resources to finding the guy and figuring out who he is, tell a sort of nuanced, give a nuanced portrait of who this guy is why he produced this content and how Trump found it, as opposed to just saying that we know who he is and we're deciding not to share that with you. And I just want to read from a passage uh, from Kaczynski's story, which is the one in question, which does to me read very gratuitously. It says, quote, CNN is not publishing Han Asshole Solo's name because he's a private citizen who has issued an extensive statement of apology, showed his remorse by saying he has taken down all his offending posts and because he said he is not going to repeat this ugly behavior on social media again. In addition, he said his statement could serve as an example to others not do the same. CNN reserves the right to publish his identity should any of that change. And that just seems like a very odd thing to include in your story. It feels a little bit gratuitous, as I said earlier. Well, the editorial judgment in that is also strange. It's like, well, he said he was sorry. He took it all down. We think that that's all right. So now, like, it does, I, I get how people read that as a threat. I don't think that that was the intention at all, clearly. 
because I'm also a journalist and right. I know how those exactly. decisions are made behind the scenes. Like that's not how those things happen. That was a poor choice of wording, a poor editorial judgment to begin with, like on multiple levels. But I, I also understand how people who don't work in newsrooms and how people who already are distrustful of the media would take that out of hand or would skew that to make us look like the villains. You know, I get that. And that's, again, why I think people need the media, whatever the media, the, the, media. the media, whatever the media is, needs to be careful because that's not about us. Right. It's not supposed to be all about us. Like the president's, you know, relationship or antagonism or hatred or whatever. Uh, with mean the, the press. story was navel gazing. Yes. Yeah, the story yeah. was navel gazing. Yes. That's that's what I'm talking right. about. Gotcha. I mean, I agree. Yeah. As our as our boss, the esteemed Kyle Pope wrote yesterday maybe we're spending too much time on the president's Twitter feed, right? Like this is an important story, his relationship with the press, his feelings about the free press, but it's now we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. This tweet that started all of this was initially posted on Sunday morning. Oh my God. Which is oh crazy to God. think about. And granted, it's a holiday week. Things moved a little slowly, <laughs> presence out of the country, but like we're now five days in. Right. Um, yeah. So right. maybe as Kyle wrote, we should get out of the picture. This is also... This is a perfect encapsulation of, I mean, this is why I said this is a story of our time, which is that, of course, the right-wing fever swamps, as we like to call them, give, gave this the most ungenerous reading possible. They said Kaczynski was threatening this guy. CNN blackmails was trending on Twitter at one point. Mike Cernovich, who's this sort of alt-right figure, was calling for people to protest outside of Kaczynski's house. Kaczynski was reportedly getting threats via social media. Like it, It's just you know a situation where we have a president who goes out of his way to take a swipe at the media. The media is in an odd position and makes potentially a mistake, but something that does something that's definitely controversial. And then people who are basically malevolent actors and are out to get the media will try to twist that decision to fit their own political purposes. Exactly. I mean, if they had published his name, then it would be like, oh, CNN ruined this man's life just for their own. Right. Yeah. It's a no-win situation. Exactly. Yeah. For their own revenge or like whatever. I mean, like, so that's why the story to begin with was a bad idea. There was no good outcome for them, really. I mean, unless they discover that the person who made the video is... Is Dan Scavina? <laughs> it's Trump? Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, is that, yeah, but like, it just doesn't, I don't know. It just was, again, poor editorial judgment, and we all have limited resources. Like, I get, like, the intention behind this, and I trust that it was all good and pure and whatever, but just, like... It just went way off track. And you have to think, I mean, there are times when the media is the story and we have to be vigilant, right, about a free press and whatever 2017 is that we all, whatever this is. It's a, it's a subreddit. We have to be, a, yeah. <laughs> 20, 2017 <laughs> is, is a subreddit. subreddit. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, we should get that on T-shirts. Our 2017. 2017 <laughs> is a subreddit. Um, but, you know, so sometimes the media is the story, but most of the time the media is not the story. We're there to do a different job, a different service. And I think that Kyle said it very succinctly yesterday in his editorial, and I don't have it memorized yet. Uh, No, I don't have it memorized, so I can't quote it. But basically, it's just like we got to get the hell out of the picture. It's not about us. Every time the president tweets, and especially when he tweets about the media, he does it so much. Yes, it's outlandish. It's upsetting. It's whatever, you know, like it's scary. But the way that we try to defend ourselves is not working. But, you know, sometimes the higher ground is just a... Say, all right, well, good luck with that, and turn the other cheek. It's not saying, like, don't seek the truth, but we all have to understand where the limits are do our jobs. Our next segment hits on one of my favorite topics to discuss. 
how the national media is or is not learning from its mistakes in covering the 2016 presidential campaign. Covering Trump country is obviously extremely difficult for national journalists who are concentrated in the coasts, such as myself. In West Virginia, a group of local journalists have taken it upon themselves to explain Appalachia to a broader audience. Join me now to discuss that project and how to cover Trumplandia is Dave Mistich, a digital managing editor of 100 Days in Appalachia. Dave, how's it going? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Doing great. So happy to have you on the show. I'm, I've loved learning a little bit more about your project. I mean, take me through this concept, 100 Days in Appalachia. It's a website that is a partnership of multiple media organizations. Take me through sort of the conceptualization of it and how it came to be in the age of Trump. This project was originally conceived about two and a half years ago. West Virginia University's Reed College of Media had been in conversations with the Daily Yonder, which is a publication from the Center for Rural Strategies. They had been talking about covering rural America and particularly Appalachia and figuring out how we could do it better and deeper and in ways that were a little bit more nuanced than what the national media uh, had been doing in the past. They felt that there was a need to take back this narrative from within. Over the course of time, you know, my employer, West Virginia Public Broadcasting, became involved in those conversations. And I think last summer, actually the summer of 2016, they were uh, they were putting this partnership together. And then the election happened, um, you know, and that sort of changed the dynamic tremendously. You know, they were looking to launch this project in May of 2017, and then we basically, uh, you know, November happened, and we sped up and we got this thing off the ground in January. So you say that the concept sort of centers on providing more nuanced discussions about Appalachia. What exactly do you mean when, when it comes to national media not diving deep into the issues that actually matter to people on the ground there? For example, uh, I think that we've we've all heard about the ubiquitous coal miner uh, sort of representing, you know, the white working class of America. I've, I've or, heard he's in a diner. Yeah, right, right. Um, somewhere in Ohio or West Virginia, right, or right. Kentucky. But the reality is, is that, you know, in West Virginia, those, those jobs have been increasingly diminished. Um, that economy has fallen off tremendously. Part of the reason is mechanization. The reality is, is that the coal miner it's, uh, himself or herself isn't particularly representative of working people in West Virginia. Right. We hear a lot about that from the national media. And of course, the Trump administration played no small part in making that part of the national narrative on working people. Sure. People tend to latch onto these narratives and they become, you know, sort of uh, picked up in, in by every news outlet and it becomes the way that these stories are told. Sure. And in reality, it's really not representative of life in West Virginia or Appalachia as much as it used to be. It holds some cultural weight, there's no doubt. But from a quantifiable way of looking at the economy and working people in West Virginia and the region, it's just not there anymore. So, I mean, how do you try to go about breaking through that? I mean, you're a small, you're essentially a small media startup in West Virginia. You have a handful of, of people working with you. You're obviously a partnership of various organizations. But, I mean, as you said, the, the national media narrative always carries tremendous weight. So with all of that momentum coming at you, how do you and your organization try to try to think about puncturing that or trying to stop it and reverse it in some way? I don't know that that's even possible, really. I mean, I think that, you know, working in media, you can only do your job and do what you do and try to hope that that it resonates with people across the region, across the country, across the world. 
one of the things we've tried to tackle with all this is is trying to say that Appalachia's story is America's story. And I think that we've done a good job in showing how, how broad the makeup of people and life is here. So. Mm-hmm. And, and when you say that, I mean, what, what particularly do you mean? Uh, I mean, just to unpack that just a little bit. I mean, obviously, the, the coal miner trope is overused, uh, and I think we can all recognize that. But I mean, more broadly than that, uh, what, do you, what do you mean by saying the story of Appalachia is the story of America? I can point to a couple different things. We're looking at, at issues like the opioid crisis mm. and how, how that's affected people here. Uh, we have a 360 video on our website about a, uh, a young lady who is a uh, Muslim American or Muslim, Muslim Appalachian. We've tackled uh, issues with race, and that's something that we're looking at to do more and more of. You know, I myself covered a, um, a white supremacist rally and counter-protest in Pikeville, Kentucky, We've tried to highlight stories that are manifesting themselves around the country, but also show that in addition to that, the Appalachia is also a very diverse place. Right. So, so in terms of amplifying this, I mean, how, how are you going about this strategy-wise? Everyone wants to broaden their audience. You want to show that this story has broader implications for their, you know, the future of the country. What are the sort of the nuts and bolts of, of, of how you've actually gone about structuring this thing, funding it, staffing it, pursuing stories? We've gone after grants, of course. We're tied to essentially the the child of three different nonprofits, so that's one route to go. Sure. And you know, we're we're looking for publishing partnerships. There's probably been a dozen different publications online and otherwise that have reached out to me about co-publishing our content or republishing content from our website. We're in talks with you know the Guardian and other international news outlets to to republish and co-publish. But of course, everything you know these days is driven by socials, and we sort of started off trying to build that audience. You know, we've made progress there, but my goal is to have you know 80 million followers on on every platform. <laughs> right. um, whether or not that's you know ever going to happen, uh, I think it's still a, a worthy goal. Right. Make it 100 um, million while you're at it. Right, right, 100 million. Right. right. Uh, actually, we just want every person on the planet that's on social <laughs> right. media to be following right. us. But. I think one of the things that, that we've benefited from tremendously is a lot of different journalists have made note of what we're doing and are interested either in working with us directly, which widens the network, of course. Right. But we've also had a lot of people that maybe don't have the time to contribute, but are more than willing to celebrate what we're doing. Right. Um, of course, Twitter, you know, is very much journalist media oriented, which you know has its limitations. But I think that a big section of the of the population and of media consumers that are really, really interested in following specific people right. and using them as a conduit for a further understanding of a particular place. What you said about partnering with outside publications to cross-publish your work, I think is a really good avenue, which I think the media, very broadly speaking, needs to explore more. I mean, you have a lot of this soul-searching since the election where all these national outlets are wondering what went wrong, and you have discussions with editors at a lot of these publications, and they say, we need to get out in the country more, we need to get out of our offices and send people out to West Virginia or Michigan or Wisconsin or whatever. And that's good, that's only good, but the fact of the matter is those people are still coming from places such as New York. York. They're not people who live in these particular right. cities. So when you have publications such as The Guardian who are reaching out to local players such as yourself to try to bridge the, that local to national divide that we see so often in media, I think that's that's such a good idea. I mean, like you and I, we hooked up via Twitter because I wrote this long piece about uh, how to cover Trumplandia. And my basic takeaway was that the only way you will be able to understand people is if you spend time with people. It's that simple. We can agonize over data and whatnot forever. But I think at the end of the day, it just 
just requires sort of being in these places and understanding them. I'll admit I think that that's complicated on my end as an Appalachian, as a person who lives in West Virginia, too. I mean, the understanding of a place probably falls somewhere in the middle. I mean, you've got, you know, this sort of parachute journalism that's happened for so long, and people are there for two or three days, and then they leave, and they write their story, and then suddenly people are squabbling over its accuracy or how truly it, it depicts a place. You know, on the other side of the coin, and I think that there are people here in Appalachia that are somewhat guilty of this, myself included, is sometimes there's these stories that are right in front of our faces and we don't notice them. Sure. So I think one of the things that we have to do is figure out how to bridge that gap between existing in a culture and just feeling like it's just part of everyday life and just ingrained in what we're doing and what we're seeing and what we're experiencing and not thinking of it being of value to the rest of the world versus sort of this parachute journalism where people are there and coming in for a couple of days and blown away by something that they haven't experienced before. <laughs> right. The true narrative probably falls somewhere in the middle there, right? right? I mean, one of the best things that I think that we've been able to accomplish is bringing on people who are in Appalachia, but also we just, you know, we just brought on a contributing editor, Lindsay Gilpin, who lives in Louisville, which isn't necessarily Appalachia proper. You know, having someone like that that is familiar with the region, that's that's reported on the region, but also isn't completely in it every single day of her life, I think that that has some value. Right. So. And, that, and that gets into more of sort of how you frame stories as well, right? Because I think you could probably make the argument that people outside of Appalachia probably don't want sort of an Appalachian view of Appalachia, right? They want a sort of a national political story that actually understands Appalachia. So it's, I think right. that's, that might be where the partnership comes in, where you have sort of a give and take between the, the outsiders and the insiders. I, and I think that that's what we're, we're aim, the, the direction we're aiming to go as well, too. And, and again, you know, I mean, our big point is that there are a lot of really interesting stories here that help narrate this country and the rest of the world and some of the issues that are being faced everywhere. The thing that we keep saying over and over again amongst our team is that everything from congressional races that are coming up in 2018 to the opioid crisis to issues of race to all these different things are absolutely a clear metaphor for what's happening elsewhere in the country, too. Certainly. His name is Dave Mistich, and the website is called 100 Days in Appalachia. We are really excited to see what your team is up to in the future. Dave, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks, David. I wanted to the end of the show with some hashtag personal news, which is that I am leaving CJR at the end of this week. I have found a new job in the media reporting criticism space. Stay tuned for where exactly I will end up. But I just wanted to let you guys know that I haven't been a victim of the meat grinder that is the financial woes of the journalism industry. You're, had, you're not shifting to video? I'm, I'm not shifting to video. Uh, pivoting, pivoting. Right, exactly. He's not pivoting I'm, I'm pivoting to a new job. But I just wanted to say that I've really enjoyed kicking it with you each week in this experiment with CJR in podcasting. I've really enjoyed bringing my colleagues in on the fun. And I want to thank, uh, in particular, Pete Vernon and Chrissy Chisholm, who have been instrumental in getting this podcast off the ground. Pete and Christy, I'm going to miss talking with you guys each week. I'm going to miss you so much, Dave. I've had the pleasure, if you don't know, I've had the pleasure of working with Dave for three years now. And most of the time, he's been sitting directly across from me. And he laughs at all my stupid jokes and makes a lot of jokes that aren't as stupid or <laughs> just as funny or funnier. Anyway, I'm Debatable. really, I'm really, <laughs> really going to miss working with you, Dave. I appreciate it. The show will continue to go on. I'm looking forward to how it evolves in the future. Thanks again for kicking with us. I won't see you next week, but I'll be listening. I hope 
you had the time of your life. 